You can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This morning we're going to talk about the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's an important subject matter. If we have a divine guide in our lives, it's imperative that we know how to recognize his guidance. The scripture makes clear that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, our guide. He leads us. And so with that in mind, we're going to seek to study this morning how it is that we can interpret and obey the Spirit's guidance in our life. If you've ever been whitewater rafting, you know that each raft is given a guide. That guide is an expert who stands in the back of the raft and tells you when to row, when to stop, how hard to pull, and steers the boat through the rapids as everyone else follows his instructions. Apart from that guide, the passengers would end up in trouble. The guide knows what to avoid, how to navigate difficult sections, where it's safe, and where it's dangerous. And for everyone in the boat to successfully make it down the river, they need to listen to the voice of their guide. When I was in high school, I remember taking one of these trips with my family, and when we came to the most aggressive part of the river, the guide steered our raft over to the shore, and we all got out and began to talk through a plan of how to navigate the rapids. He explained that this was the trickiest part of the river. It was a waterfall that had a tendency to pull the raft backwards underneath the waterfall to flip it and send everyone into the rapids. So the guidance from our guide for everyone in the raft was to not stop rowing. Keep on rowing. Pull hard at the oars, and we won't flip. Now, this was concerning to many people in the raft. Someone raised their hand and asked, what could happen to us if we fell out? And the guide said, it's not dangerous. You don't need to worry. You may go underwater for a few seconds, but you'll come up, and you'll float down the rapids a little ways to a calm area. You're not in danger. Now, upon hearing of the possibility of getting thrown out of a raft and riding down the rapids in such a way that you wouldn't get hurt, needless to say, my brothers and I were intrigued. We looked at each other and we said quietly, we're going in. So we got back in the, in the boat and we began to row down. And when we came to the waterfall, we received instruction from our guide and he said, pull. We chose to ignore those instructions. We didn't pull. Our raft got pushed under. We were all thrown overboard. And we happily floated down the river. It's a great memory. But what I want us to know from that story <clears throat> is that in rejecting the voice of our guide, it was in rejection of the voice of our guide that we ended up in the water. In a more dangerous situation, rejection of the voice of our guide could have resulted in a very different story. Now, following a guide through rapids is a fairly straightforward task. He speaks to you directly. He tells you exactly what to do, and you follow his instructions. The guidance of the Holy Spirit, however, is often a far more difficult and nuanced subject matter. There is much confusion over how the Holy Spirit guides us. It often leads to obscure statements that feel entirely subjective, and nearly impossible to quantify. You've heard many vague statements about individuals' perception of the Spirit's guidance. I feel God calling me towards this job. I don't feel at peace with this decision. 
I don't think that this relationship is God's will for me. God put this message on my heart. Sometimes it takes an even more explicit form. God told me that I needed to do this. Or God gave me a sign that I shouldn't do this. Even God spoke to me directly. There's lots of terminology that gets thrown around about the subjective interpretation of the Spirit's guidance. This morning, I want to give a a brief theological overview of the Spirit's guidance to equip us to make sense of how we should proceed to interpret and obey this important ministry of the Holy Spirit. Before we do that, we need to establish first and foremost that the Spirit does, in fact, guide us against those who would say that the Holy Spirit is entirely uninvolved. I think it's important that we look to Romans chapter 8, where we see that the Spirit does, in fact, guide every believer. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Paul says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Say that one more time. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The expression that Paul uses here, to be led by the Spirit of God, is the biblical equivalent to our term, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. To lead someone down a path in a certain trajectory is to guide them, to tell them where they should go. Interestingly, Paul says that the Spirit's leadership is a real event for every Christian. Every Christian. Those who are led by the Spirit of God, those are the sons of God. Paul presumes that if you are a Christian, then the Holy Spirit is your guide. The Spirit's guidance is directly related to the fact that the Spirit dwells within you. Verses 9 through 13 of Romans chapter 8 lead up to that statement in verse 14, and they're all about the fact that the Spirit is in you. It's the presence of the Spirit in you that leads to His guidance in your life. So the Spirit of God guides us. He directs our steps. He influences and guides us in the way that we should go. So this certainly is a ministry of the Spirit. But there are so many questions that result from it. So how can we make sense of this ministry of the Spirit? Well, this morning, I'd like us to to have two considerations. We're going to structure our time this way. Two considerations for making sense of the Spirit's guidance. There's, There's two really just categories of things that we need to consider as we seek to make sense of the Spirit's guidance. These are going to be two broad topics with specific points under each of them. Full disclosure, this is going to feel very theological this morning. We're going to be referencing several different texts, bouncing back and forth between the Old Testament and New Testament, looking at what Scripture instructs us about the Spirit's guidance. The first consideration, the first thing that we need to consider in order to make sense of the Spirit's guidance is the nature of the Spirit's guidance. We need to consider the nature of the Spirit's guidance. Knowing the nature of the Spirit's guidance is helpful for us to recognize what is actually the work of the Spirit and what are feelings or impressions that we may receive for any number of reasons. We must know the nature of the Spirit's guidance so that we can recognize it when it's there. There are several statements that we'll evaluate this morning as we, as we seek to rightly understand the nature of the Spirit's guidance. The first is this. The Spirit's guidance is rooted in biblical truth. The Spirit's guidance is rooted in biblical truth. This is the essential 
starting point for understanding the way that the Holy Spirit guides us. There's really two sides of the coin that we need to to take note of as we see the fact that the Holy Spirit's guidance is rooted in biblical truth. The first is, is that Scripture is the primary tool that the Spirit uses to guide us. The primary tool that the Spirit guides us with is God's Word. On the other side of the coin, even if the Spirit is working in a way that is, that is not directly through God's Word, it's important to remember that the Spirit will never contradict biblical truth. So biblical truth is the primary tool that the Spirit uses, and when the Spirit guides, it will never contradict biblical truth. Let's examine that first statement first. The Spirit's primary tool for guidance is biblical truth. So much of searching for the Spirit's guidance is an effort to find a word of direction from God. It's easy to forget in our searching for a word of direction from God that God has indeed spoken. The words of the Spirit of God are articulated clearly in your Bibles. In the midst of all of the subjectivity of interpreting the Spirit's guidance, there is wonderful reassurance in the fact that the Spirit has objectively spoken. It's easy to see God's Word as separate in some way from the Spirit's guidance. But the Word of God is, in fact, the Spirit's words. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 make this clear. Peter writes, No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In those verses, Peter is talking about the, the revealed word of God recorded in your Bible. He says the prophetic words of Scripture are the Holy Spirit's words. In our hunger to find direction in life, it's essential that we do not overlook the words written under the Spirit's guidance. If you want to be led by the Spirit, you must know the words of the Spirit recorded in Scripture. Your Bible is the primary tool that the Spirit uses to guide you in life. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul describes the Word of God as the sword of the Spirit. That is to say that it is the weapon that we wield against the schemes of the devil. In other words, contained in God's Word is what you need to walk faithfully with Him and not to fall into the traps of the enemy. When we are seeking for guidance in life, what we are seeking to navigate is not falling into the traps of the enemy. And and, and in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says he has given you a sword, a tool for this, and it is the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit works through the Word of God. The psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That is the essence of guidance. Your word guides me. It lightens the way that I should go. It tells me where to walk. A yearning for the guidance of the Spirit does not lessen an emphasis on biblical truth. It raises it. A yearning 
for the guidance of the Spirit raises the emphasis of biblical truth. Because God's inspired word is the primary way that the Spirit guides us. God's God's expectation for you is that you are rooted in biblical truth as you make decisions in life. Let me give you an example of this in Isaiah chapter 30. You're welcome to turn there. You can just listen along. In Isaiah chapter 30, we encounter a scene in which Judah is under threat of attack from Assyria. And in seeking how to navigate the complexity of this attack, Judah is, is, being, uh, is looking into an alliance with Egypt in order to protect them. And God is opposed to this alliance. And I want us, want us to note the words that he says to Judah about this alliance with Egypt. He says, woe to the rebellious children in verse 1 of Isaiah 30. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin. Again, Isaiah in that verse is warning Judah against their plans to make an alliance with Egypt for protection against the threat of the Assyrians. God warns them. He says, your decision is not guided by my spirit. It's not from my spirit. You have a plan. It's not my plan. Now, we read a text like that and we think, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to follow a plan that is not from God. I don't want to make a plan that is not guided by his spirit. But what I want us to know in Isaiah chapter 30 is not that the guidance of the spirit was some subjective feeling that they had about this decision. The guidance of the spirit was not some secret message or some hidden message that they needed to discover. Further on in this text, we're told why Their plan to ally with Egypt was not of the Spirit of God. Look at verse 9. Still speaking of Judah, God says, For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. Look down at verse 12. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word, and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them. Therefore, this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall. We're told why. Judah's plans were not of the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't because of some subjective feeling that they had about the plan or some hidden secret about that plan that they needed to discover. No, this alliance violated specific commands that God had given them. They were not following the instruction of the Lord when they made this alliance with Egypt. The guidance of the Spirit was not some mystical secret. It was not of the Spirit because it disobeyed God's commands. God had guided them by His Spirit when He instructed them by His Word. Do you see that? God had guided them by His Spirit when He instructed them by His Word. What made their decision contrary to the guidance of the Spirit was that they did not make their decision in light of God's revealed truth. It was not submitted to what God had instructed them. So for Judah, 
And for us, the primary tool that the Spirit uses to guide you is biblical truth. But the Scriptures are not the only tool that the Spirit uses to guide us. It's primary. It's primary. But it's not exclusive. Let's go one step further than just what we've covered so far. Even if the Spirit were guiding you uh, apart from God's Word directly, it's important to remember that the Spirit will never contradict biblical truth. The Spirit will never contradict biblical truth. Often, we encounter scenarios where it doesn't feel like Scripture speaks to that scenario directly. So we're left to evaluate whether God is using opportunities or convictions or desires and feelings to guide us. When we're interpreting those subjective things, it's important to remember that the Spirit's guidance will never contradict biblical truth. So an important question to ask is whether there is anything sinful or contrary to God's word that is motivating or driving my steps. If the answer is yes, then it is not the prompting of the spirit. He will not contradict the word. He will not guide against the revealed word. As Jesus is telling his disciples that the spirit will come and reveal to them what they need to know to record the gospels in John chapter 16. He tells them that the spirit will not speak on his own initiative, but he will tell you what he hears. In other words, the spirit will not speak anything different from Jesus. He will communicate consistently with God and his word. He will never contradict the word that he inspired. So check. Check what you may think is the guidance of the Spirit against the litmus test of Scripture. A.W. Pink, in his book on the Holy Spirit, writes this. There is a safe and sure criterion by which the Christian may gauge his inward impulses and ascertain whether they proceed from his own restless spirit, an evil spirit, or the Spirit of God. That criterion is the written word of God, and by it, all must be measured. The Holy Spirit never prompts anyone to act contrary to the Scriptures, unquote. The Spirit's guidance is rooted in biblical truth. That brings us to a second uh, part of the nature of the Spirit's guidance that we need to rightly understand this morning. First, the Spirit's guidance is rooted in biblical truth. Also, the Spirit's guidance primarily involves your sanctification. The Spirit's guidance primarily involves your sanctification. You're being changed into the image of Christ. We tend to think of the Spirit's guidance in regard to major decisions in life. But in Scripture, the Spirit's guidance primarily manifests itself in reference to obedience and sanctification. When Paul teaches that the Spirit leads the believer. He's not talking about major decisions that we need to make in life. Instead, he's talking about your sanctification. I'm going to read you again from the text that we started in Romans chapter 8. We already observed that Paul says that every believer is led by the Spirit, but what I want us to note in that text is what leads up to that statement. Romans chapter 8, I'm going to read what precedes verse 14 and verses 10 through 13. Paul says, 
If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. When Paul speaks on the fact that every believer is led by the Spirit, what he's talking about is the fact that the Spirit leads us into sanctification. He leads us in righteousness. He leads us to obey, to put the flesh to death. The result of the Spirit's guidance or leading in your life is that you would not live according to the flesh. Said another way, the Spirit guides you away from sin and into righteousness. That is what the Spirit's guidance primarily involves. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, Paul is again speaking of the leading of the Spirit. He uses the same terminology. He, he, the Spirit leads you. He is your guide. And once again, when he speaks on that truth, he's talking not necessarily about major decisions in life so much as he's talking about your sanctification. Listen to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, and hear that theme carry through his comments on the guidance of the Spirit. I say, Paul writes, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. See, when Paul speaks on the guidance of the Spirit, his mind is on obedience of the believer. The primary result of the Spirit's work in your life is Christ-likeness. Jesus told his disciples, again in John chapter 16, that the Spirit would point to Jesus. I believe this is one of the ways that that happens. The Spirit guides us so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. The emphasis of the Spirit's leading in Scripture is leading you in righteousness. Now, what does this look like? I think this looks like several different things. We'll talk about two of them for just a moment. One of the ministries of the Spirit by which He guides us into Christ's likeness is that He convicts us of sin. He convicts us of sin. So when you feel conviction of the Holy Spirit over, over sin in accordance with God's Word, when you feel that conviction, the Spirit is guiding you. Make no mistake. He is guiding you in Christ-likeness to, to confess that sin. He guides through conviction. If you're still in Romans chapter 8, look at verse 16. Here's another way the Spirit guides us in Christ-likeness. Romans 8 verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. He, he reminds us. He affirms to us that we are, in fact, children of God. The Spirit does that to us individually. So when we may be tempted to fall, he says, no, you're a child of God. He, he testifies to us. He reminds us of that reality. He guides us towards Christ-likeness. Why does this need to be said? We tend to think about the Spirit's guidance in terms of decisions. 
We want the Spirit to guide us in who to marry, which house to buy, which job to take, where to go to school, how many children to have, and countless other decisions in life. And make no mistake, the Spirit, God cares about those things. He does. He's not uninvolved in them. But the essence of the Spirit's guidance is not the revelation to the answer key of life's perfect decisions. The essence of the Spirit's guidance is moral in nature. He guides us towards Christ-likeness. I'm going to quote from A.W. Pink again. Again, He has a phenomenal chapter on the guidance of the Spirit in his book titled The Holy Spirit. A.W. Pink again says, as far as we are governed by the Spirit of God, we are conducted along the highway of holiness. The Spirit leads the Christian away from the vanities of the world to the satisfying delight which is to be found in the Lord. His aim is to conform us more and more to the image of Christ, unquote. That's his aim, to make you more like Jesus. In seeking the Spirit's guidance, we often hunt for what God's will is for our lives. We want him to guide us into God's will. It's important for us to remember that God's will for your life is never presented as a series of decisions that you have to guess correctly. God's will is never presented that way. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, this is the will of God, and whatever comes next is immensely important. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is where the Spirit is guiding us. And looking more like Jesus, the Spirit's leadership in your life is towards righteousness. So these are two important aspects of the nature of the Spirit's guidance. It's rooted in biblical truth. The Spirit's guidance primarily involves your sanctification. But I want us to know a third detail about the nature of the Spirit's guidance. Number three, the Spirit's guidance is not revelatory. The Spirit's guidance is not revelatory. Let me explain that for just a moment. Whatever the Spirit guides us in, it's important for us to note that he is not revealing new truth. And we need to theologize a little bit to get here. We've established previously in this study on the Holy Spirit that God is not actively giving new revelation. He has spoken in his all-sufficient word. The believer is not missing any information that he needs for life and godliness. Pastor Myrell established last Sunday night that the revelatory gifts have ceased. God is not actively delivering new messages to you, meaning he's not giving you inspired and errant revelation that you need for life and godliness. If we believe that to be true, and if we believe that the Holy Spirit is God, then it follows that the Spirit's guidance is not revelatory. Now, you may be quick to affirm that statement. It's interesting how easily we speak of the Spirit's guidance in a revelatory way. God told me to say this. God showed me this. I felt or heard God telling me something, even more subtly. I think we can crack the door to a revelatory ministry of the Spirit when we say things like, God laid this on my heart, or God has given me a sign. Now, we need to walk carefully here. We need to be careful. Is it possible that the Spirit could lay a burden or some truth upon your heart? I believe that it is. I believe that it is. But not in a way that is revelatory. Meaning, the previous points that we've established this, this, this morning need to be kept central. If such an impression is not consistent with and rooted in Scripture, then it should not be trusted as authoritative. 
if it's new, if it's different from what God has revealed, not pointed in the trajectory of personal holiness and sanctification, then we should be suspicious of such impressions. How do we get here? How do we get to a point where we often think of the Holy Spirit's guidance as a revelatory ministry? I think this starts from a misinterpretation of several key texts. And in John chapter 16, verses 12 and 13, Jesus says that the Spirit will guide you into all truth. Many have taken that to mean that the Spirit will reveal messages to each of us, things that we need to know that are not in Scripture. Now, that is what Jesus is saying in that verse. He says to his disciples, I have a lot more to tell you, and I don't have time. (laughs) So I'm sending the Holy Spirit. He's going to tell you the rest of what you need to know. But that is a message that Jesus delivers directly to his disciples. And the reason that he delivers that message to his disciples is so that they can record scripture that we hold today and that we can know with confidence that that is the word of God because the Holy Spirit revealed it to them. But that's not a promise for you. The promise is not directed to you that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. In addition to that, We see many times in Scripture when the Holy Spirit does audibly speak to and direct individuals. It's always very specific. He says says to Philip, go get in that chariot. And he says to Paul, do or don't go into that specific city. The Spirit does do that. We see that in Scripture. It's easy for us to expect the same in our own lives. While the Spirit of God is intimately involved and concerned for every detail of our lives, He is not revealing a new Word of God. But rather, He works through the Word of God in whatever other means He desires to direct us in obedience and Christlikeness. There's more that could be said about the nature of the Spirit's guidance, but I think that those three statements are paramount in our understanding and interpreting of how the Spirit guides us in our life. The Spirit's guidance is rooted in biblical truth. The Spirit's guidance primarily involves your sanctification. And the Spirit's guidance is not revelatory. Well, this is the first kind of category that we need to consider as we seek to make sense of the Spirit's guidance in our life. But I want to turn our attention now to a second consideration for making sense of the Spirit's guidance. And that second consideration is potential avenues for the Spirit's guidance. Potential avenues for the Spirit's guidance. That word potential is really important. Relying on any of these categories that I'm going to talk about over the course of the next few minutes, relying on any of them as inherently authoritative is dangerous. But I believe that the Holy Spirit can and does work through these things so they should be considered and evaluated in light of biblical truth. Now, we've already established that the primary tool for the Spirit's guidance is God's Word. That is not a potential avenue for the Spirit's guidance. It is a certain one. But there are other ways that the Spirit may guide us. Because of the subjectivity of each of these, it's important that we test these potential avenues for the Spirit's guidance against the certain avenue in God's word. Test what is subjective against what is objective. Test what is errant 
with what is inerrant. Test these things against the word of God. The first potential avenue for the Spirit's guidance is counsel. A potential avenue for the Spirit's guidance is counsel. God can use counselors in your life to direct you in the way that you should go. God's word places a high priority on seeking counsel. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15 says, a wise man listens to counsel. A wise man listens to counsel. On the flip side of that, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks away from all sound judgment. A wise man listens to counsel, and those who reject counsel end up in trouble. If you're struggling with interpreting the Spirit's guidance in your life, seek counsel. Seek counsel. Talk to other believers. Talk to your spiritual leaders. The God-glorifying wisdom that is needed for navigating life's endless decisions is found in counsel. Scripture makes that clear. But counsel is not a certain path for interpreting the Spirit's guidance. It's not certain. There is such a thing as bad counsel. When Solomon's son, Rehoboam, inherited his father's kingdom, his fatal flaw was not that he did not listen to counsel, but that he chose the wrong counsel. Psalm 1 tells us that the one who is truly blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So it is godly counsel then to which we should run. Choose your counselors carefully. Choose your counselors carefully. The Spirit of God can guide you through the advice of godly counselors. There is wisdom and discernment in heeding wise counsel. But again, counsel should be tested against Scripture. Why do we run to godly counsel? The value of godly counsel is that it should align with God's word, the ultimate litmus test of the Spirit's guidance. Even Proverbs tells us in in chapter 21 that there's no counsel that will succeed if it's against the Lord. But inasmuch as godly counselors can help us to see how biblical truth informs our decisions, they are an avenue for the Spirit's guidance a potential avenue through which the Spirit can guide you. Let's look at another one. Desires. Desires. It is possible for the Spirit to guide you based on desires that He gives you. Now, sometimes this is very easy to discern. Sometimes this is really easy. Spiritual desires are not natural to any of us, and thus they are a result of the Spirit of God guiding us. It's not natural to desire righteousness. That comes by the guidance of the Spirit. Fleshly desires are natural to us, and thus are not from the Spirit. But many desires seem neutral. A desire to live in a certain part of the country may be neutral. A desire to have a specific career may be neutral. You need to test your desires carefully. Our hearts are deceitful. Evaluate your desires honestly. But if in God's providence, he has given you a desire for certain things, it's not wrong to pursue those things. 
If a young man comes into my office who can't decide where God is leading him for a career, my first question is, what do you want to do? What do you enjoy? What are you good at? If God has given you certain desires to do or not to do something, those are factors in determining the Spirit's guidance. Let me give you an example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's speaking of a man named Apollos, one of Paul's partners in ministry, and he tells, Apoll- he, he tells the church at Corinth that, that he thought Apollos could serve them well in Corinth. So he writes this, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 12. Paul says this about Apollos. I encouraged him greatly to come to you, but it was not at all his desire to come now. But he will come when he has opportunity. Paul says he doesn't want to come. You want to come right now. Paul encouraged him. Paul didn't command him. He encouraged him. Apollos says, God hasn't given me a desire to go right now. And he did ministry where he was and he didn't go. God may very well guide you by giving you desires for certain things. But we simultaneously know that just because we desire something does not make it the Spirit's guidance. I presume you know that to be true in your own life. Every desire that you have is not from the Spirit. Paul says to the church at Rome, I greatly desire to see you. And I've planned many times to visit you. He's like, I want to do it. I have this desire. I want to come. But God had not enabled such an event to happen. So even though Paul had a desire to go, he did not determine the Spirit to be guiding him there, so he did not go. The Spirit can guide us through our desires. But the fact that we desire something does not necessitate the Spirit's guidance, and thus, it should be tested carefully. Let's look at another one. Opportunities. Opportunities. Another way that the Spirit may lead us is through opportunities. We often refer to God opening doors and closing doors. This can very much be the guidance of the Spirit. But even opportunities must be evaluated closely and carefully. Paul tells the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 3, to pray that God would open up to us a door for the word. To pray, I, 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 need, I need God to open the opportunity. Pray that he would open the opportunity for me to do this. When things were out of Paul's control, he would look for God to open an opportunity. But quite often, God did not open a door for Paul to preach the gospel. In Acts chapter 16, we read that the Spirit of God did not permit Paul to preach in Bithynia. And Paul interpreted that as God's restricting of even a good thing in the preaching of the gospel. So Paul had an opportunity perhaps before him. He could go to Bithynia, but God did not, to use Paul's terminology, open that door. He did not permit it to happen. Paul didn't go. The Spirit may very well guide us through opportunities that are available to us. He may do that. However, we need to remember that not every opportunity is a calling. So again, opportunities should be submitted to other ways that the Spirit guides us. It's also important for us to remember here that if there isn't an opportunity for something, 
you should take that into account as to whether or not the Spirit is guiding you in a certain trajectory. Seems like I encounter this regularly where people may think, I, I feel like God is calling me in this direction, but like I just can't find the path to get there. The door isn't opening. Right? The young man who says, I'm convinced that God wants me to marry this young girl, but she doesn't like me. <laughs> like that, it, that matters. It's a factor. If the door is not open, perhaps the Spirit is guiding you in another direction. But again, it must be tested carefully. There are examples in God's word of opportunities that were not open and believers who prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and waited. So he may, he may not guide you through open or closed doors. Opportunities should be submitted to the other ways that the Spirit guides us, primarily the word of God. Let's look at another category. Convictions. Another way that the Spirit may lead us is through feelings of conviction. We've already seen the fact that the Spirit does, in fact, convict us of sin. That is certainly a ministry of the Spirit. I think we need to be careful here that just because you have a conviction about something doesn't necessarily mean that it is of the Spirit of God. Just because you have a conviction of something doesn't mean that it is of the Spirit of God. We can point to individuals throughout history that did things out of a sense of conviction who were wrong. Now, we need to, we need to speak very carefully on this subject matter because God's Word is clear that you must not sin against your conscience. You must not sin against your conscience. But God's Word is also clear that you need to make sure that your conscience is being informed by Scripture. What makes something sin is whether it is contrary to God's revealed will. That's what makes something sin. I think we all know that we can create categories of sin that are not really sin. Just as much as we can justify categories of life that are actually sin. What's the test? God's word. While the Spirit does convict us of sin, not every conviction is a matter of the Spirit. Believers everywhere have disagreements on matters of conscience. In other words, discerning the Spirit's guidance is not as simple as saying, I feel convicted about this, therefore God is directing me to do it. It's easy for us to fall into that. I feel convicted about this. That seems like a good thing. Therefore, God is directing me to do this. The Spirit may guide you through convictions. He may. But you must test them against His Word. You should not sin against your conscience, but you should consistently check your conscience against Scripture. Let's look at one more. Again, this list is not exhaustive. There's other things that could be said here. These are uh, the things that I've felt are primary and how we tend to think through the Spirit's guidance, and so that's why they're on this list, but there is more that we could say here. But let's look at one last category this morning, feelings. Feelings. I know there's significant overlap in some of these, like feelings and desires, but they have nuances that I think are worth distinguishing. Sometimes we have a good or bad feeling about things. In more spiritual language, we tend to say things like, I don't have peace about this decision. 
That kind of peace can be difficult to quantify. It may be a conviction, it may be a desire, or it may just be a gut feeling. Can the Holy Spirit guide us by giving a certain sense or feeling about something? I think that he can. I think that he can. When we are prone to anxiety, Paul says in Philippians 4, to make your desires known to him and he will give you peace. God can give peace. He can give unrest. He can give peace. He can give unrest. On one of Paul's missionary journeys, he was waiting for news from Titus about how the Corinthians had responded to the earlier letter that he had sent them. And he was, he was concerned for their response. He writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and a door was opened for me in the Lord. But I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. So taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. It's a strange verse. Paul had an opportunity opened for the preaching of the gospel, and he said his spirit was not at rest. There was something that he was concerned about, and he didn't have peace about where he was spending his time, and so he moved on. The spirit guided Paul away from Troas by his lack of peace of mind, even though he had an opportunity to preach the gospel there. In that scene, we see our last potential avenue, the spirit's of the Spirit's guidance in opportunities contrasted against Paul's feelings. He had an opportunity, but he wasn't at peace, and so he didn't take it. God can give us unrest. God can cause nights of tossing and turning. But that doesn't mean that nights of tossing and turning are necessarily from God. Nor does it mean that every decision that we feel good about is a God-glorifying decision. Once again, such feelings are certainly not the final word. Pastor Rick has instructed us many times to go through a process of getting past what we feel to rest in what we know. Another way of saying that is to check our fickle and subjective feelings by the surety of biblical truth. Getting past what you feel to what you know is checking the subjectivity of our feelings against biblical truth. The Spirit may guide you by causing you to feel a certain way, but it doesn't mean that because you feel a certain way that the Spirit of God is necessarily behind it. You may be at this point in our time this morning with a lot more questions than answers. (laughs) And that's okay. As much as I would love to, to be more concrete than this in our time together this morning, we can't extend beyond what God's word allows us to say, which is that God may guide us in many ways, but that they should all be tested against his word. And when nothing conflicts against God's word, It's okay to act in accordance with your desires and personal feelings. Those aren't anti-spiritual. The Spirit may very well use them. I want to close our time this morning illustrating all of this with a story of a man named J.C. Ryle. Ryle was an ordained bishop of the Church of England in the mid to late 1800s. 
We've recommended several of his books, like Holiness and Thoughts for Young Men. At the age of 64, while Ryle had been gladly ministering at a parish for 19 years, he received an invitation to a distinguished position to become the dean of the Cathedral of Salisbury. J.C. Ryle had a difficult decision to make, but one thing was certain. He did not want to do it. He didn't want to do it. But he sought lots of counsel. After seeking this counsel, he wrote this. We have this recorded in a letter to a close friend. Ryle says, My flesh and blood are utterly against it. But almost every one of 16 men I consulted said you ought certainly to go for the sake of Christ's cause in the Church of England. So who was I that I could withstand? I had prayed for light and signs of God's will, and this was all I got. If three men had said refuse, I would have refused. But I am a soldier. The captain of my salvation seems to say, these are your marching orders. I have nothing to do but to obey. Pray for me. My heart is very heavy. So there's an opportunity, a good one, one that could certainly be justified biblically. Ryle chose to listen to counselors rather than his own desires. Did he choose rightly? Story's not over. He announced to his congregation that he was leaving. As he was preparing to leave just a few weeks later, seemingly out of the blue, before Ryle had taken the new position, he got off of a train, and when his feet hit the platform, he was approached and offered a different position to be the first bishop of Liverpool. This was a position that much more aligned with his desires. Now, because of some political reasons, the request required an immediate response. And on the spot, Ryle accepted the position. God immensely blessed Ryle's ministry in Liverpool. Over a period of 20 years until his death, his ministry thrived. One scholar says that under his leadership, his diocese became the most evangelical in doctrine and evangelistic in practice anywhere in the Church of England. The Holy Spirit clearly guided J.C. Ryle to Liverpool but not as simply as we might expect. He used counselors to direct him one way and then used opportunities, desires, convictions, and even feelings all in accordance with God's word to lead him exactly to where he wanted him to be. Commenting on this event, J.R. Packer writes the following, quote, was Ryle led by the Holy Spirit in his discernments of the will of God? Surely he was. Were these decisions the product of inner voices or impressions, freak coincidences, private revelations, or any such thing? No. They were the rational fruit of having a biblical value system and a heart for God, for his gospel, and for his glory, and of seeking wisdom, noting circumstances, taking advice, and not letting merely good elbow out the best. By these means, the Holy Spirit gave Ryle discernment for his decisions, and we should expect that he will do the same for us, unquote. Every believer, 
every believer is led by the Spirit of God. You're ready to be led by him. If you know his word, are seeking his kingdom, and are chasing the discernment that he alone gives.